The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, yeah, um, I, I teach at the, uh, in the Department of Theater and Dance at McAllister College, and <clears throat> I have a long practice history in you know, the Thai forest tradition and the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, and I'm <clears throat> really happy to uh, step in as needed. Um, and I, you know, when I sub here, I, I like to make the subject what I'm working on in my practice, so I kind of just bring that to, to the talk. Um, and right now, that's mental pain. You know, it's like, even that word, what is mental pain? as opposed to physical pain. What is mental pain? Um, and I'm talking about the kind of mental pain that, that we really recognize as making us suffer. You know, That the kind of rage, the kind of fear, the kind of you know, jealousy, whatever it, it might be for us. And we could even just take a moment, like, ooh, is there, is there, what is that, what is that thing for me, you know, that, that starts to feel like a, <laughs> a burden in this life, you know, this pattern in my mind, this visitor to my mind, this frequent visitor to my mind, you know. So the, the Buddha called these afflictive mental states, kalesis. Um, and they include <clears throat> anxiety, fear, anger, jealousy, uh, desire, craving, depression. And these are considered states that cloud the mind. They're considered visitors to the mind, not intrinsic to the mind. And then the other important question is, what is the attitude in the mind toward the kalesis? Like when we're angry, what is the attitude toward our anger? Or when we feel fearful, what is the attitude toward the fear? Do we welcome it? Do we suppress it? You know, really, like that's a real question. Is there an attitude there? What is it? And maybe it's different at different times. So these states of mind are part of the unwholesome roots. So if you know about Buddhist cosmology, there's this, um, the wheel of samsara. This is actually a, a wheel that would be depicted in any Tibet, Tibetan monastery that you'd go to. And um, <clears throat> it's like, it's, it's sort of the wheel of endless cyclic existence, um, um, continuous being born and dying, being born and dying, being born and dying. And being born and dying in realms of suffering, right? And the wheel in the depictions, it's sort of held, you know, in in claws by the Lord of Death. So the Lord of Death embraces this wheel of samsara. And then in the hub of the wheel, in the middle of the wheel, are the three unwholesome roots, aversion, craving, and ignorance. And they're depicted as animals, three animals. So, so the pig, like in India, uh, the pig was considered an ignorant animal because it would eat anything and sleep anywhere. So pig is the representation of ignorance. The bird that's represented in this figure is 
uh, a kind of bird that gets very attached to its partner. So that represents craving or desire. So, so ignorance is the pig. This bird is desire. And then um, a snake represents aversion, hatred. So aversion is anything we push away, right? Anything we say. And that can be fear, like, no, I don't want that. Hatred, anger, all that. And these three animals are chasing each other's tails. And that is what propels this wheel of samsara. And then outside of the Lord of Death, you know, in the sky, there's a blue moon. It's a luminous moon. And then that's considered um, a symbol of liberation outside of the, the wheel of birth and death. <clears throat> so the language is kind of, you know, when you read these, <laughs> these suttas, you know, they're called like the three poisons, the three carnal faults, you know, the defilements. And they're really... It can be uncomfortable language for us. It feels sort of like it's got this Old Testament, you know, whatever. But like when we're true to our hearts, when we feel like the power of addiction, for instance, in the heart, or the power of rage in the heart, we respect, we respect the power of these states because they can be dangerous. We just have to look at the world, right? We just have to look at the world. And the Buddha said that they're fueled by wrong view. They're fueled by ignorance. And they have tremendous power when they're not seen and when they're not understood. And they have tremendous power when they're suppressed. I'll just give a really short example of a recent mental pain arising for me. I just came back from a really lovely vacation a few weeks. My brother has a, my brother and his wife have a, um, a little house down in, o- in Ocean City that just sits right on the beach and they invited me. I'm on my sabbatical and they invited me to come and <clears throat> spend time there just by myself to have a little retreat. And, and I arrived and I, it was just like a, a heaven realm for me, this beautiful space and time, and um, <clears throat> and I'm putting the groceries away, and and uh, and in one of the cupboards, I saw there's a, a bottle of wine. Wouldn't that be great to just sit on the porch, look at the ocean, have a glass of wine? Right, this is where my line's going. And you know, and I, so I did that. I opened the I opened the bottle of wine, and then the the cork just disintegrated, like. You know, just just right down, it was like it was like pure vinegar, and you know, it's not a big deal. It's just like this, you know, unfortunate bottle of wine, and and then I I kind of went online, and I you know, because I thought I'll replace it, I'll just sort of find, and then I saw, oh, this was a massively expensive bottle of wine, <laughs> and it was from 1999, the year my brother and his wife got married at the shore. So, so it all came together, you know. And so what, what was in a second like this heaven realm went to, oh, like what have I done? You know, this, this treasured bottle being saved from 1990, you know, and, and it, was, uh, it was just a, and I sat, you know, I sat, I let it, 
I let it arise. And, and I've been studying, like, I've been studying feeling. You know, there's this vedna, this idea of feeling, that, that everything can be seen as pleasant, unpleasant, or kind of neutral, neither unpleasant or... And like, and vedna, pleasant and unpleasant, is it in the body? Is it in the mind? And, you know, when does it... When is it both in the body and in the mind? And here, I was seeing, okay, there's, there's unpleasant Vedana. And I could feel there was upset in the body. There was sort of contraction and trembling. And it was unpleasant, but that wasn't the source of the pain, right? This was mental pain. This is pain in the mind. Okay, there's pain in the mind. Now, where is it? You know, like, what is it? You know, I'm feeling it. And, and, and just this sort of deconstruction, trying to understand what is the nature of this mental pain? Where does it come from? How does it live? Right? And so I'm like, you know, breaking down the aggregates, you know, and Shelley Graff is teaching a course on the aggregates Monday night, you know, all aggregates, the things that kind of make up all of our experience. So there's the level of feeling, okay, unpleasant feeling. The perception in the mind, you know, um, the, this narrative of what had happened. So perception is what what conceptualizes, right? What become what's indefinite becomes definite and conceptualized through perception, right? And then there's mental formations, all the proliferation, all the mental activity around that, all the the intentions. What am I going to do with this? And then consciousness, which knows it all. All these threads of the mind kind of moving around, and, and, and just this frustrating feeling of, like, not understanding, like, you know, pain in the body, I see, I understand, you know, but what is, what is mental pain? And here's what the Buddha called, he had similes for feeling. Feeling is a bubble, perception is a mirage, mental formations, uh, it's a banana tree, a banana tree, when you peel back the bark, there's nothing there. Consciousness, a magic trick. So just to kind of hold that, you know, just to hold that mystery. <laughs> and I'll just tell one more story. Maybe some of you know Jimmy Kimmel, the late night host, right? Every Halloween, he invites parents across the country to um, do a little prank on their kids that they, they say, you know, that... Um, I'm sorry, I ate all your candy. And then they video, right? <clears throat> and, and I, you know, Mark and I were just watching this, and, and it was like, oh, my God, this is like mental pain. Like, like you know, and it, it's just fascinating. I mean, just, I wanted to bring it in and show you all. It's just like examples of how our minds work, these, these little children. And they're too little to manage it all, right? And then, I'm sorry, I ate your candy. And then the range of rage or, you know, grief or, you know, and their little bodies can't even hold it, you know, and they're, they're hitting their balls. And, you know, so it's, it's fascinating, like, and it's so funny. I mean, why is it funny? I mean, like, like what is so funny here, and, you know? And, and that's a, a real question, too. And, and you know, and maybe because on some level we kind of know it's okay. This is a prank, you know? And, and maybe in some way, you know, not to diminish our dramas, but maybe there's something there about something that can be seen more deeply about what's going on. The Buddha said, um, 
The mind is by nature radiant, it's shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And this is Trelag Rinpoche um, from the Vajrayana tradition. He says, uh, there's an open, empty, clear, spacious, and luminous clarity of mind that is beyond concepts, ideas, or sensations. It does not come and go because it never enters the stream of time and is beyond both experience and intellectualism. So I think, you know, these kind of statements, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, I don't take them as dogma, but I believe them. You know, it's like sometimes touching into that stillness of mind, you know, one thing that, that's clear to me is it's not what I think, you know. There's, there's something else going on here. And so to not hold these as dhamma, but invitations to investigate, you know, investigating our own mind. And the Buddha had similes of, like, these visitors to the mind that basically cloud the radiance. So, um, so and I'll just say what these similes are. So with this desire or craving... Um, he has an image of a, well, I'll start, the image like of a clear bowl of water. When the water is smooth and clear, it will reflect accurately what's around, right? There's a capacity to reflect with accuracy, precision. Um, but when there's desire or craving in the mind, the mind, the mind is reaching out, it, it sees something attractive that it wants, then the image is like the, the water is colored, like a rose color that is actually, we perceive to be more attractive than it actually is. It's like looking through rose-colored glasses, right? We, it's more attractive than is real. So there's a deception, you know, with the, with the craving. There's a wrong, um, wrong understanding. Uh, with aversion, uh, the water is boiling. So when we're angry, you know, when we're fearful, when we're agitated in this hatred, the water, you know, has this kind of activity. And we know this in the mind, right? When we're angry, like, how do the thoughts move when we're angry? You know, what's happening in the body when we're angry? And this image of boiling water, it can spill out, right? It can hurt. It can hurt others. It can hurt us. So so boiling water. um, And then ignorance um, is the water is muddy. It's dark, right? It can't reflect it can't reflect anything. So, so it's so. What do we do? <laughs> what do we do um, with these states of mind? You know, because they're both dangerous, <laughs> but they need to be seen and they need to be understood. And so, the Buddha had many strategies to offer, um, and I'll just go through. I'll go through a few. Um, and also we need to learn to monitor ourselves and what we're ready for. You know? So that's part of the training, is just understanding where we are in this moment. What is the antidote in this moment? So his first one, um, you know, when we find ourselves, let's just use anger as an example, in a state of anger, uh, give attention to something wholesome. So that's the instruction. Give attention to something wholesome. So as a skilled carpenter might not knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg, 
by means of a fine line. So we replace one thing with another thing. So there can be a a little alchemy, just with a shift of attention, from unwise attention to wise attention. Like I notice with our cat Bear, you know, like he just came from the woods in Wisconsin. He's an outdoor cat. He's a football player, and he will not be in the house. So I, you know, he has to live his own life. And I love him deeply. And every time I open the door, I just notice a little clinging in the heart, like, please come back someday, <laughs> you know, like, like. But I, I notice the little suffering of that clinging, that like not wanting him to come to any injury or, you know. But, but it's like I can just go through a reflection, you know, uh, you know like what are, what are my desires for this cat? He needs to live his life, you know, and, and just shifting so, so where fear can become generosity, right? Just, just a little shift of attention. And, and it's to protect me. Right? It's to protect my heart, too. So just noticing when there's clinging, how can we shift the lens through our, through our thinking, right? Through the way we reflect on what's happening. Replacing one state of mind or state of heart with another state of mind. So there's an alchemy. I don't want to fuel that fear. That feels clear. That's not useful. I've already established he's going outside, right? And for me to feel fear each time that happens, you know, what, what's the point? And then the second, try not to give the thoughts attention. So as a person with good eyes, who did not want to see the forms within range of their eyes, would shut their eyes or look away. So I think, um, you know, like I notice for myself, like sometimes like in the middle of the night, you know, when the mind has been dreaming or it's quiet, just some old wounds might come. I might wake up, just some old wounds, old patterns of thought might might kind of come up. It feels like the mind is particularly vulnerable. And I know my mind well enough. This is not a time to investigate, because if I let my mind move in this way, I'm going straight to hell, right? (laughs) I'm going straight to hell. So I know this. You know, this I can investigate when the mind is calm after I've been sitting and established in my center but not in the middle of the night, you know? So I read a book. So really, it's like something just to take me out of this path. The third one, examine the danger in this mental state. These thoughts result in suffering. So when we know that, you know, sometimes just saying that, because sometimes we can indulge, you know, it feels self-righteous, you know, it feels good. We, we have a sense of ourself, who we are, this this person who's angry at that, you know, whatever it is, there, there can be an indulgence where we don't even see what we do to ourselves with that line of thinking. So sometimes just seeing that, honey, this is burning you, you know, just seeing that, that can be just enough, like letting go of that hot coal, I'm feeling the burn, let's find something else, you know, so... So just noticing the, the um, danger in the mental state. And the last, um, and probably the, the one of last resort, um, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, crush, mind with mind. <laughs> so as a strong person might seize a weaker one. So that, you know... We can use that when we feel we're going to do something that is really going to hurt someone, 
you know, we can crush mine, you know, we can just see. Crush mine with mine, not going to do that. Um, this reminds me of a, of a story. Um, Mark and I were taking a um, metta retreat at IMS, a three-week retreat where, you know, just cultivating the Brahma Viharas in the heart, right? And so when we were doing the loving-kindness, we had these loving-kindness phrases that, you know, they gave us examples, but we could make up our own. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be protected from all harm. May I move through this world joyfully. May I be healthy and strong. You know, and then you repeat it endlessly, and the idea is that those, that those phrases sort of massage the heart and kind of wake up with these beautiful intentions toward kindness. And Mark really, really struggled. He just, re- like, he could not, his mind would not, it would deflect. He could not stay with these words. And so he told me once, or I heard him say in a Dhammata, I can't remember, he went out in the woods and he started to shout them. He would walk them and shout them, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, you know, like crushing mine. And he told me, I will not be distracted. I will not, you know, like the mind will not get the best of me here. I love that story, you know, like... It says something about Mark, too. <laughs> I'm just, you know, just going to do that thing. So. so we have to know where's the mind. You know, we have to know what, what, we're, what we're ready for. Um, and then how and when we can really open and invite in these very powerful forces. A, a teacher of mine, she described to me how um, <clears throat> her mother, who really suffered atrocities in World War II, how as she was growing up, uh, her mother used to howl sometimes, you know, as a way to let that pain move through her. And, uh, yeah. I just was so moved. (laughs) by the story because I, it, it made me realize like, oh, like could I ever allow myself to like howl? <laughs> you know, could I, you know, like, like that permission to be expressive of pain, you know? And, and, and my teacher said she was happy she could grow up in a place where that was okay. You know, she was grateful for that. And, that, and, and just that little story made me realize, just in, con- in unconscious ways, how I don't allow the full flowering of pain sometimes. Like, I don't really let it in in a way that I let it do its dance, and I can be mindful and see it. And um, so, so I, um, I learned... Along these lines, you know, when I was a performer in the uh, early 90s, just getting used to dancing on stage, and, you know, and like many of us in our early 20s, just very struggling with self-consciousness, and, you know, just everything was painful. I was so reserved, and, and performing was really a trip. It was really difficult, and, uh, and so much fear. So much fear. It was not only dancing on the stage, but even in class, you know, even in rehearsal, just as this like plague of fear. Um, 
that I did everything I could, you know, sports psychologists and counselors, and really tried to work with my mind diligently, like self-talk and, you know, and, and just not understanding these forces. And then one day I actually really, you know, I lost myself with fear while I was performing, and I would just wander at this video. I, I couldn't have told you what my name was, much less, like, go through steps. And but it was so powerful. The fear was so powerful that it, it actually caught my attention. Like, not in that moment. I just wanted to get out of that moment. But later, it's like, what the hell? What is this? Like, and that question became really powerful. And I had the intuition, like, just stop. You know, because I'd been doing this. Get the fuck out of my life. You're ruining my life. You know? and, and so instead, there was like, what? And that took me to the cushion. That took me to meditation. Like, be still when <laughs> what's here? And really, it was like, this was such a, a powerful revelation about the need to open, like, let this in. Stop the quarrel. Stop the war. You know, this is here. Um, and, uh, and in the stillness, you know, I remember just the first time sitting down and the instruction was to watch the breath. I was so grateful for the breath. I don't have to think. I don't have to feel. I just watch the breath. You know, I was devoted to the breath. And there was safety in it. And I learned what, what that meant, the protection of a gathered mind against this affliction of fear. And that gave me the stability to really, okay, what is it? What is it? And I had to learn this a hundred times, not just one time, right? And each time I would get up to perform, there was like, okay, fear, here you are. Ooh, like lounge chair, you know, just lie back. I, you know, I invite you in. I'm not going to fight with you anymore, you know. So there was just this surrender that was, was actually a game changer in my life, just to see this, this little pivot about how we deal with something as powerful as that. <clears throat> this wise attention, the Buddha had a word, the, the Pali word, yoniso manasikara, yoniso, wise, or um, yoni, it, it also means womb place of birth, thoroughness, with a purpose. So wise attention, attention with a purpose. How do we pay attention? <clears throat> you know, and we don't, we don't like these states of mind <laughs> because they, you know, the tendency is to own them. Like, I don't want to be an angry person, you know, so I don't, I don't want to see that arise in the mind. I don't want to be a jealous person. I don't want to see that arise in the mind. So we can really unconsciously just push away, you know, I'm not that person. Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm paraphrasing him, but, but he said to treat our anger, um, or whatever it may be, our affliction, like a little brother or a little sister. Keep hold of their hand. Keep them close. 
don't let them run rampant, you know. We guide, we get to know, we take interest. And there's so much tenderness in that description, you know, how we can feel tenderness toward these unwholesome roots. It's counterintuitive, right? You know, it's like, how do we feel tender towards the poisons? But that's the, that's the journey. And I'll just say one more word about um, if we might feel helpless, like we, if we really feel in the prison of depression or in a prison of self-doubt or whatever it, whatever it might be, a prison of unworthiness, that, that it's important to recognize that these unwholesome roots are universal. Without exception, we all... We all <laughs> suffer from them. So, so your, your suffering is not unique uh, in this way. But they can be seen, and they can be understood, and they can be uprooted. And I, and I want to end with a... Um, then we can just do a short Q&A or just whatever you have to say. But this really deserves a, the whole reading of it, but I'll just read a paragraph. There's a, our community member, Sue Cochran, who, you know, she's been, um, yeah, she's been working with the terminal uh, condition for years now, and she's been writing on a blog, and this is about her blog, and, and she just, you know, grew up with a, just a lot of traumatic situations and addiction, and, and, um, and she, you know, is just kind of talking about her, yeah, her process, and, she refers to this, uh, this form of uh, ancient Japanese art called kintsuji. And it's like um, when, a, when a bowl or a piece of pottery is broken, um, there's this art of, of it reattaching, of, of rebuilding, and, and with the joinery, putting gold, right? So it's, it's reconnected through gold. Um, and then in, J- in Japan, it's considered more beautiful than the original pot once it's been sort of broken and then brought together in this way. And this is what Sue says. She says, learning about Kintsuji helped me look back and realize that my greatest wish was to be unbroken pottery instead of who I was. This caused me so much suffering because it was impossible. When I finally had the courage to show these broken edges to others, to my brother, to dear friends in AA, in counseling and in safe communities. I received acceptance and was loved and respected just the way I was, in the same way my grandmother did. My broken parts were transformed into what students of Kintsuji called precious scars, which honored my whole life, leaving nothing out. It's a Japanese woman from 976 A.D. she was born, and she has this poem. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So knowing ourselves. Okay. I had so much more, but we'll we'll end. (laughs) 
So any thoughts, anything to share, any questions that came up for you? Good morning. Uh, my name's Mary Laurel, and um, I guess I a lot of times I sit with the confusion, which is at the same time um, trying to bring the pain or the suffering or whatever it is close to you, like you said, like a, a mm-hmm. small child or a brother or sister, and at the same time, today you were teaching us some really helpful ways to get away from that. So I, I, I want to say it's like this now, and then I feel the suffering a lot of times, but then I, then I want to learn those four ways of getting rid of it. So how do you balance, I guess, those yeah. two? Yeah, and, it, and it's like an art, right? It's not, it's not a science. So, you know, when something's really hot, you know, there can be this thing of like, you know, I've, I'm, I'm established, I'm calm, you know, I let it in, and I touch, I touch it, right? And, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm, but then I, I find, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting drawn in, and the mind is doing this. And maybe I let that go on a little bit, and then I say, okay, that's enough. I'm coming back here. So, like, touch and go. Mm-hmm. Touch and go. And then sometimes you might find I'm touching. Oh, but I can stay here for a while now. So you just have to sort of... You just have to sort of monitor how is the mind? How is the mind? Just keep asking that question as you're exploring. Yeah? Did that answer it? That's really okay. helpful. Thank Great. you. Mm-hmm. I uh, have been searching for a metaphor or something to sort of lure my three teenagers in here, and they all bailed on me this morning, but <laughs> I'll try again next week. And uh, the Kintsuji concept may just be it and it it rang true with me also so a bowl that never gets used is going to stay uncracked and in the closet and unappreciated and still uh, flawless in a sense but use it damage it make it more beautiful and acknowledge the damage and make it precious I guess so thank you for that thank you hey Wen so I'd like to know, did you replace the wine? <laughs> you know what, Mesky? I called my brother. I can't tell the mental pain of like speaking to him, but but he said, No, it's just an old forgotten bottle of wine. <laughs> wow. But I'm not sure I believe him. I'm not sure I believe him, but Yes, I did. I replaced it, and I, I left the bottle there just in case the bottle had any value. But, yeah. um, thank you for your talk. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, mental pain or physical pain, what, what came for me was this kind of opportunities here, you was a wine. We, we really cannot know ourselves without that kind of experience because we you know we we some of the things that I that that helped me get to know myself is like really the craziest things happen and you'd be like I didn't know there was this in here so Mm -hmm. it's I mean not that to go try to find that but to actually uh, you know just some of the things that like when it's quiet and peaceful. You don't know all the crap that's in there. Yeah. So it's kind of a grateful experience, right? 
If you didn't open the wine, you wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, I just want to say I'm going to add howling to my toolbox. Um, I've been feeling that mental pain just just kind of exhausts me, and it's embarrassing. It's because I I get um, I get I get so hung up with like um, when my kids are not doing well. You know, it's my my oldest daughter. She's on the autism spectrum, so she's often having huge outbursts, and I don't know always what to do, and then I realize it's it's me, you know, But and to change my focus, but I've been trying so hard to be calm, and I think it was, like, worse. <laughs> and just as she needs to growl, I think I might need to howl. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think the apple falls far from the tree, so um, I just want to say thank you for your talk. I just, um, I'm Chaya. I um, just wanted to share, some people have already I told about this, but just the mental pain that I uh, went through over the weekend, but yet was able to realize that my practice was able to deal with that. And the simple, the simple thing of, which we all have, a telephone that we have in our pocket that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Mine died. And to realize what I had on that phone was all the pictures of my wife who passed four and a half years ago. Um, they're gone. All the phone numbers, all the stuff. And I was at first I was thinking, oh, we could figure out how to get that back. And then I realized, no, it's gone. So just realizing to be able to be this practice that we're doing to be okay with something that is as painful as, you know, losing... I know it's just pictures. I still have them in my mind. I still have them in my heart. But it was initially I'm sitting there going, they're gone. They're simply gone. And to be okay with that, I think, is what the practice is teaching us. Thank you, Kaya. I think we have to wrap up. So let's just, let's just sit for a moment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.